Chapter 4 of Erasmus and the Age of Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Trenton. Erasmus and the Age of Reformation by Johann Husinga. Translated by Frederick Jan Hoffmann. Chapter 4. First Day in England, 1499-1500 Oxford, John Collette Erasmus's aspirations directed towards divinity. He is, as yet, mainly a literate. Fisher and Moore Mishap at Dover when leaving England, 1500 Back in France, he composes the Adagio, Years of Trouble and Penury. Erasmus's first stay in England, which lasted from early summer 1499 till the beginning of 1500, was to become for him a period of inward ripening. He came there as an erudite poet, the protégé of a nobleman of rank, on the road to closer contact with the great world which knew how to appreciate and reward literary merit. He left the country with the fervent desire in future to employ his gifts, insofar as circumstances would permit, in more serious tasks. This change was brought about by two new friends he found in England, whose personalities were far above those who had hitherto crossed his path, John Collette and Thomas Moore. During all the time of his sojourn in England, Erasmus is in high spirits for him. At first it is still the man of the world who speaks, the refined man of letters, who must need show his brilliant genius. Aristocratic life, of which he evidently had seen but little at the Bishop of Cambrai's and the Lady of Arrays at Turnahem, pleased him fairly well, it seems. Quote, Here in England we have indeed progressed somewhat. The Erasmus, whom you know, is almost a good hunter, already not too bad a horseman, a not unpractised courtier, he salutes a little more courteously. He smiles more kindly. If you are wise, you will also alight here. And he teases the volatile poet by telling him about the charming girls and the laudable custom, which he found in England, of accompanying all compliments by kisses. It even fell to his lot to make the acquaintance of royalty. For Mountjoy's estate at Greenwich, more in the course of a walk, took him to Eltham Palace, where the royal children were educated. There he saw, surrounded by the whole royal household, the youthful Henry, who was to be Henry the Eighth, a boy of nine years, together with two little sisters, and a young prince, who was still an infant in arms. Erasmus was ashamed he had nothing to offer, and on returning home he composed, not without exertion, for he had not written poetry at all for some time, a panegyric on England, which he presented to the prince with a graceful dedication. In October, Erasmus was at Oxford, which at first did not please him, but whither Montjoy was to follow him. He had been recommended to John Collette, who declared that he required no recommendations. He already knew Erasmus from the letter to Gauguin in the latter's historical work, and thought very highly of his learning. There followed, during the remainder of Erasmus's stay at Oxford, a lively intercourse in conversation and in correspondence, which definitely decided the bent of Erasmus's many-sided mind. John Collette, who did not differ much from Erasmus in point of age, 
had found his intellectual path earlier and more easily. Born of well-to-do parents, his father was a London magistrate and twice Lord Mayor, he had been able leisurely to prosecute his studies, not seduced by quite such a brilliant genius as Erasmus possessed, into literary digressions, he had from the beginning fixed his attention on theology. He knew Plato and Plotinus, though not in Greek, was very well read in the older fathers, and also respectably acquainted with scholasticism, not to mention his knowledge of mathematics, law, history, and the English poets. In 1496 he had established himself at Oxford. Without possessing a degree in divinity, he expounded St. Paul's epistles. Although, owing to his ignorance of Greek, he was restricted to the Vulgate, he tried to penetrate to the original meaning of the sacred text, discarding the later commentaries. Colette had a deeply serious nature, and always warring against the tendencies of his vigorous being, and he kept within bounds his pride and love of pleasure. He had a keen sense of humor, which without doubt endeared him to Erasmus. He was an enthusiast. When defending a point in theology, his ardor changed, the sound of his voice, the look in his eyes, and a lofty spirit permeated his whole person. Out of his intercourse with Colette came the first of Erasmus's theological writings. At the end of a discussion regarding Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, in which Erasmus had defended the usual view that Christ's fear of suffering proceeded from his human nature, Colette had exhorted him to think further about the matter. They exchanged letters about it, and finally Erasmus committed both their opinions to paper in the form of a, quote, little disputation concerning the anguish, fear, and sadness of Jesus. Dispututati in cula de tedio, pavore tristitia, Jesu, etc., being an elaboration of these letters. While the tone of this pamphlet is earnest and pious, it is not truly fervent. The man of letters is not at once and completely superseded. Quote, See Colette, thus Erasmus ends his first letter, referring half ironically to himself, how can I observe the rules of propriety in concluding such a theologic disputation with poetic fables? He had made use of a few mythologic metaphors. But as Horace says, Naturum expelles furca, tamen usque recurrit. This ambiguous position, which Erasmus still occupied also in things of the mind, appears still more clearly from the report which he sent to his new friend the Frisian John Sixten, a Latin poet like himself of another disputation with Colette, at a repast, probably in the hall of Magdalen College, where Wolsey, too, was perhaps present. To his fellow poet, Erasmus writes as a poet, loosely and with some affectation. It was a meal such as he liked, and afterwards frequently pictured in his colloquies. Cultured company, good food, moderate drinking, noble conversation, Colette presided. On his right hand sat the prior Charnock of St. Mary's College, where Erasmus resided. He had also been present at a disputation about Christ's agony. On his left was a divine whose name is not mentioned, an advocate of scholasticism. Next to him came Erasmus, quote, that the poet should not be wanting at the banquet, unquote. The discussion was about Cain's guilt, by which he displeased the Lord. 
Colette defended the opinion that Cain had injured God by doubting the Creator's goodness, and, in reliance on his own industry, tilling the earth, whereas Abel tended the sheep and was content with what grew of itself. The divine contended with syllogisms, Erasmus with arguments of rhetoric, but Colette kindled and got the better of both. After a while, when the dispute had lasted long enough and had become more serious than was suitable for table talk, quote, Then I said, in order to play my part, the part of the poet, that is, to abate the contention and at the same time cheer the meal with a pleasant tale, quote, It is a very old story. It has to be unearthed from the very oldest authors. I will tell you what I found about it in literature. If you promise me first that, you will not look upon it as a fable. Unquote. And now he relates a witty story of some very ancient codex in which he had read how Cain, who had often heard his parents speak of the glorious vegetation of paradise, where the ears of corn were as high as the alders with us, had prevailed upon the angel who guarded it to give him some paradisal grains. God would not mind it if only he left the apples alone. The speech by which the angel is incited to disobey the Almighty is a masterpiece of Erasmian wit. Quote, Do you find it pleasant to stand here by the gate with a big sword? We have just begun to use dogs for that sort of work. It is not so bad on earth, and it will be better still. We shall learn, no doubt, to cure diseases. What that forbidden knowledge matters I do not see very clearly, though in that matter, too, unwearied industry surmounts all obstacles." Unquote. In this way the guardian is seduced, but when God beholds the miraculous effect of Cain's agricultural management, punishment does not fail to ensue. A more delicate way of combining Genesis and the Prometheus myth no humanist had yet invented. But still, though Erasmus went on conducting himself as a man of letters among his fellow poets, his heart was no longer in those literary exercises. It is one of the peculiarities of Erasmus's mental growth that it records no violent crises. We never find him engaged in those bitter inward struggles which are in the experience of so many great minds. His transition from interest in literary matters to interest in religious matters is not in the nature of a process of conversion. There is no Tarsus in Erasmus's life. The transition takes place gradually and is never complete. For many years to come, Erasmus can, without suspicion of hypocrisy, at pleasure, as his interests or moods require, play the man of letters or the theologian. He is a man with whom the deeper currents of the soul gradually rise to the surface, who raises himself to the height of his ethical consciousness under the stress of circumstances rather than at the spur of some irresistible impulse. The desire to turn only to matters of faith he shows early. Quote, I have resolved, he writes in his monastic period to Cornelius of Gouda, to write no more poems in the future except such as savor of praise of the saints or of sanctity itself. Unquote. But that was the youthful pious resolve of a moment. During all the years previous to the first voyage to England, Erasmus's writings, especially his letters, betray a worldly disposition. It only leaves him in moments of illness and weariness. Then the world displeases him, and he despises his own ambition. 
He desires to live in holy quiet, musing on scripture and shedding tears over his old errors. But these are utterances inspired by the occasion, which one should not take too seriously. It was Colette's word and example which first changed Erasmus's desultory occupation with theological studies into a firm and lasting resolve to make their pursuit the object of his life. Colette urged him to expound the Pentateuch or the prophet Isaiah at Oxford, just as he himself treated of Paul's epistles. Erasmus declined. He could not do it. This bespoke insight and self-knowledge by which he surpassed Colette. The latter's intuitive scripture interpretation without the knowledge of the original language failed to satisfy Erasmus. Quote, you are acting imprudently, my dear Colette, in trying to obtain water from a pumice stone, in the words of Plautus. How shall I be so impudent as to teach that which I have not learned myself? How shall I warm others while shivering and trembling with cold? You complain that you find yourself deceived in your expectations regarding me. But I have never promised you such a thing. You have deceived yourself by refusing to believe me when I was telling you the truth regarding myself. Neither did I come here to teach poetics or rhetoric. Colette had hinted at that. These have ceased to be sweet to me, since they ceased to be necessary to me. I decline the one task because it does not come up to my aim in life, the other because it is beyond my strength. But when one day I shall be conscious that the necessary power is in me, I too shall choose your part and devote to the assertion of divinity, if no excellent yet sincere labor. The inference which Erasmus drew first of all was that he should know Greek better than he had thus far been able to learn it. His stay in England was rapidly drawing to a close. He had to return to Paris. Towards the end of his sojourn, he wrote to his former pupil, Robert Fisher, who was in Italy, in a high-pitched tone about the satisfaction which he experienced in England. A most pleasant and wholesome climate, he was most sensitive to it. So much humanity and erudition, not of the worn-out and trivial sort, but of the recondite, genuine ancient Latin and Greek stamp that he need hardly any more long to go to Italy. In Colette he thought he heard Plato himself, Grossin, the Grecian scholar, Linacre, the learned physician, who would not admire them, and whose spirit was ever softer, sweeter, or happier than that of Thomas More. A disagreeable incident occurred as Erasmus was leaving English soil in January 1500. Unfortunately, it not only obscured his pleasant memories of the happy island, but also placed another obstacle in the path of his career, and left in his supersensitive soul a sting which vexed him for years afterwards. The livelihood which he had been gaining at Paris of late years was precarious. The support from the bishop had probably been withdrawn. That of Anna of Array had trickled but languidly. He could not too firmly rely on Montjoy. Under these circumstances, a modest fund, some provision against a rainy day, was of highest consequence. Such savings he brought from England, twenty pounds. An act of Edward III, reenacted by Henry VII not long before, prohibited the export of gold and silver, but Moore and Montjoy had assured Erasmus that he could safely take his money with him, if only it was not an English coin. At Dover, he learned that the customs house officers were of a different opinion. 
he might only keep six angels. The rest was left behind in the hands of the officials and was evidently confiscated. The shock which this incident gave him perhaps contributed to his fancying himself threatened by robbers and murderers on the road from Calais to Paris. The loss of his money plunged him afresh into perplexity as to his support from day to day. It forced him to resume the profession of a bel esprit, which he had already begun to loathe, and to take all the humiliating steps to get what was due to it from patrons. And, above all, it affected his mental balance and his dignity. Yet this mishap had its great advantage for the world, and for Erasmus too, after all. To it the world owes the adagio, and he the fame which began with this work. The feelings with which his misfortune at Dover inspired Erasmus were bitter anger and thirst for revenge. A few months later he writes to Bott, quote, Things with me are as they are wont to be in such cases. The wound received in England begins to smart only now that it has become inveterate, and that the more as I cannot have my revenge in any way. And six months later, quote, I shall swallow it. An occasion may offer itself, no doubt, to be even with them. Unquote. Yet meanwhile, true insight told this man, whose strength had not always attained to his ideals, that the English, whom he had just seen in such a favorable light, let alone his special friends among them, were not accessories to the misfortune. He never reproached more of Montjoy, whose inaccurate information, he tells us, had done the harm. At the same time, his interest, which he always saw in the garb of virtue, told him that now especially it would be essential not to break off his relations with England, and this gave him a splendid chance of strengthening them. Afterwards, he explained this with a naivete which often causes his writings, especially when he tries to suppress or cloak matters, to read like confessions. Quote, Returning to Paris a poor man, I understood that many would expect I should take revenge with my pen for this mishap, after the fashion of men of letters, by writing something venomous against the king or against England. But at the same time I was afraid that William Montjoy, having indirectly caused my loss of money, would be apprehensive of losing my affection. In order, therefore, to put the expectations of those people to shame, and to make known I was not so unfair as to blame the country for a private wrong, or so inconsiderate as, because of a small loss, to risk making the king displeased with myself, or with my friends in England, and at the same time to give my friend Montjoy a proof I was no less kindly disposed towards him than before, I resolved to publish something as quickly as possible. As I had nothing ready, I hastily brought together, by a few days' reading, a collection of adagia, in the supposition that such a booklet, however it might turn out, by its mere usefulness would get into the hands of the students. In this way I demonstrated that my friendship had not cooled off at all. Next, in a poem I subjoined, I protested that I was not angry with the king or with the country at being deprived of my money, and my scheme was not ill-received. That moderation and candor procured me a good many friends in England at the time, erudite, upright, and influential men." Unquote. This is a characteristic specimen of semi-ethical conduct. In this way, Erasmus succeeded in dealing with his indignation, so that later on he could declare, when the recollection came up occasionally, quote, 
At one blow I had lost all my fortune, but I was so unconcerned that I returned to my books all the more, cheerfully and ardently, unquote. But his friends knew how deep the wound had been. Quote, now, on hearing that Henry VIII had ascended to the throne, surely all bitterness must have suddenly left your soul, unquote. Montreux writes to him in 1509, possibly through the pen of Ammonius. The years after his return to France were difficult ones. He was in great need of money and was forced to do what he could as a man of letters, with his talents and knowledge. He had again to be homo poeticus or rhetoricus. He writes polished letters full of mythology and modest mendicity. As a poet, he had a reputation. As a poet, he could expect support. Meanwhile, the elevating picture of his theological activities remained present before his mind's eye. It nerves him to energy and perseverance. Quote, it is incredible, he writes to Bond, how my soul yearns to finish all my works, at the same time becoming somewhat proficient in Greek, and afterwards to devote myself entirely to the sacred learning after which my soul has been hankering for a long time. I am in fairly good health so I shall have to strain every nerve this year, 1501, to get the work we gave the printer published, and by dealing with the theological problems to expose our cavillers, who are very numerous, as they deserve. If three more years of life are granted me, I shall be beyond the reach of envy." Unquote. Here we see him in a frame of mind to accomplish great things, though not merely at the impulse of true devotion. Already he sees the restoration of genuine divinity as his task. Unfortunately, the effusion is contained in a letter in which he instructs the faithful bot as to how he should handle the late of Array in order to wheedle money out of her. For years to come, the efforts to make a living were to cause him almost constant tribulations and petty cares. He had had more than enough of France and desired nothing better than to leave it. Part of the year 1500 he spent at Orléans. Adversity made him narrow. There is the story of his relations with Augustin Vincent Caminade, a humanist of lesser rank. He ended as syndic of Medilburg, who took young men as lodgers. It is too long to detail here, but remarkable enough as revealing Erasmus's psychology, for it shows how deeply he mistrusted his friends. There are also his relations with Jacobus Vohecht, in whose house he evidently lived gratuitously, and for whom he managed to procure a rich lodger in the person of an illegitimate brother of the Bishop of Cambrai. At this time, Erasmus asserts, the bishop, Antimacenus, he now calls him, set Standenach to dog him in Paris. Much bitterness there is in the letters of this period. Erasmus is suspicious, irritable, exacting, sometimes rude in writing to his friends. He cannot bear William Hermans any longer because of his Epicureanism, his lack of energy, to which he, Erasmus, certainly was a stranger. But what grieves us most is the way he speaks to Honest Bot. He is highly praised, certainly. Erasmus promises to make him immortal, too. But how offended he is when Bot cannot at once comply with his imperious demands. How almost shameless are his instructions as to what Bot is to tell the Lady of Ver, in order to solicit her favor for Erasmus. 
and how meagre the expressions of his sorrow when the faithful thought is taken from him by death in the first half of 1502. It is as if Erasmus had revenged himself on Bot for having been obliged to reveal himself to his true friend in need more completely than he cared to appear to anyone, or for having disavowed to Anna of Borsalin his fundamental convictions, his most refined taste, for the sake of a meager gratuity. He has paid homage to her in that ponderous Burgundian style with which dynasties in the Netherlands were familiar, and which must have been hateful to him. He has flattered her formal piety. Quote, I send you a few prayers, by means of which you could, as by incantations, call down, even against her will, from heaven, so to say, not the moon, but her who gave birth to the son of justice. Unquote. Did you smile your delicate smile, O author of the colloquies, while writing this? So much the worse for you. End of chapter four. Recorded by Trenton.